everyone, and welcome to this week's Bradley Lecture. I'm Wilson Shirley. For this lecture, we're delighted to welcome on our first guest, Robert Doerr, AEI's Mortgage Fellow in Poverty Studies. Before coming to AEI, Robert administered the large social welfare programs in New York City and New York State. This lecture, originally given in May 1996 by noted sociologist Christopher Jenks, asks the provocative question, did we really lose the war on poverty? So Robert's a natural guest to discuss it. A lot has happened in poverty policy since then, and we've asked Robert to come on at the start of this program to give the remarks a little bit of context. It's a debate that hasn't been settled, and Robert is raising it again, both on this podcast and at an event at AEI on September 24th. That event will feature a keynote by our former AEI colleague and current CEA chair, Kevin Hassett. If we want our social welfare programs to succeed, knowing what we got right and what we got wrong is crucial for knowing the path forward. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Robert Doerr, followed by Christopher Jenks on Did We Really Lose the War on Poverty? Hi, Robert. Thanks so much for coming on today. We're delighted to have you here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I mentioned this in the introduction, but we decided to do this because on the 24th of September, you're hosting an event called Did We Win the War on Poverty with CEA Chair Kevin Hassett. This lecture, given in May 1996, was the inverse of that question. Did we really lose the war on poverty? So is this a case of everything that was old being new again? Well, I don't know about that, but it's a a perennial discussion about whether our efforts to help uh, struggling Americans have been successful or not. And uh, people have taken a run at it many times. And in in this case, the essay that you're referring to in the Bradley Lecture by Christopher Jenks um, was a very good contribution to the discussion, as I'm sure... uh, 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 CEA Chairman Kevin Hassett's contribution on Monday will be. Uh, the, the The problem for the discussion is that uh, you can ha- you have to have two conflicting ideas in your head at the same time. Uh, the first is uh, we did win the war on poverty because we reduced uh, material hardship significantly in a, in a significant way. And Christopher Jenks was right about that then, and I think Mr. Hassett's going to be even more right about that now. But we also lost the war on poverty because we didn't help people earn their own success through work and employment and and reach uh, an element element of self-reliance. And we have more uh, dependency on various government programs to help people get above the poverty line than we did back then. So it was true then um, that we um, won it in one way and lost it in another, and it's true now. In some ways, it's even more true. I think we've done even a better job of relieving material hardship. Um, and I think we've done a little better job on work, but we still have a ways to go. So Jenks also talks about how he thinks that there's a perception that we lost the war on poverty because of how it was marketed, that people thought that the war on poverty was going to cure social ills like substance abuse and family breakdown. Um, and the trend lines on those, uh, even if material well-being looks good, um, haven't been good themselves. So do you think that was a problem in how we talked about the war on poverty? Um, how much of a part of it is it? Well, I'm reading a book about uh, the making of the Great Society, and the marketing of it was fraught with with this idea that it wasn't just about relieving material hardship. It was about helping people achieve self-sufficiency. Certainly, President Johnson talked about that, and uh, that didn't happen. So he's right that the over-promising, uh, whenever you, you know, just the term Great Society, uh, it tends to uh, raise people's expectations. It's a nature of politics to overpromise, 
but uh, it did have downside consequences because people didn't see the uh, nirvana that was promised. Um, so this this lecture was given in May 1996, and just a few months later, President Clinton would sign welfare reform into law. So a lot has changed since May 1996, particularly with a program that Jenks talks about called AFDC. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those changes and how they've affected poverty in America? Yes. I, I believe that the war on poverty is iterative. It's happened in people. Federal policy has changed over many years, and there are many players in the construction of the current efforts we have to reduce poverty. And Bill Clinton was a major player. But so was Gerald Ford and the creation of the Child Support Enforcement Program or President Nixon and the, and the creation of the Earned Income Tax Credit and Refundable Tax Credits and others. And I think the result of all of that activity um, is that um, we're, we've made uh, significant progress. But I think the biggest change since the original Great Society programs of, of Medicare and Medicaid and the growth of food stamps in the 1960s was the transformation in 1996 to this one program, the Aid to Families with Dependent Children's program to the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, which instituted really firm work requirements on the states and on the individuals who were seeking assistance. And that was a big step, and it came out of deep frustration about the previous failures. And um, I was involved in the implementation of that in a state which was particularly in need of reform, and I saw a real uh, significant positive change in New York City and New York State as we moved toward a program that instead of promising people that we would maintain their income with entitlement payments, we instead said, we're going to help you get a job, and we're going to insist that you look for a job and work at getting a job, and that led to big uh, increases in labor force participation for single parents and uh, increases in earnings and decreases in poverty. And, and I think whole communities changed. In New York City, in 1994, there were 1.1 million out of a city of roughly 8 million uh, who were receiving um, cash benefits from this program that you referred to, the AFDC program. By the time I left New York City government in, 19, in 2013, there were 360,000. The That's city amazing. had grown, too. So it was a huge drop in dependency on that cash uh, assistance program and an increase in work, although I should also point out there was also a big increase in take-up rates of other forms of assistance that are used to supplement work, like the SNAP program or child care mm -hmm. assistance or uh, public health insurance. Um, so as someone who's administered large social programs in um, incredibly complex settings, I'd be curious as to what you think of a, of a metaphor that Jenks uses at one point. He compares large social programs to startups. He says that uh, startups, they have market forces. Most of them fail. Um, but there are, there are a lot of tests for their success. Um, he, with large social programs, um, he gives a metric of over $10 billion a year. Um, the metric of success is your ability to build consensus. Uh, most social programs fail, but if you can get, if you can get a social program uh, that is at $10 billion or more, you've built consensus, and most large social programs, he says, uh, succeed. Uh, what do you think of that metaphor? Well, the three examples that I would give are the food stamp program, the Medicaid program, and the earned income tax credit, uh, which is refundable tax credit for working Americans. And 
In the SNAP or food stamp program, the goal was to reduce malnutrition or hunger or uh, the number of Americans who really were struggling with the ability to afford food. And that has uh, been significantly decreased. Uh, Malnutrition is basically gone in America, and that's an achievement. It costs a lot of money and uh, big effort, but, but that is an achievement. In the case of Medicaid, we have a you know, a very low uninsured rate. If the goal was to insure Americans and make sure that low-income Americans have access to health insurance, we certainly have achieved that. Um, I don't know that we've improved their health care, but uh, I think there are some studies that show that we have and some studies that show that we haven't. And then finally, um, on the Earned Income Tax Credit, again, a very large program, more than $70 billion now, um, it has been shown to help uh, uh, people both go into the labor market and work and also stay in the labor market. And it certainly increases income and the return for work for people that are in low-wage jobs. Um, and all three of those programs do have a strong consensus. Um, Democrats and Republicans have voted for them year after year after year. Um, even in the Republican effort to change the Medicaid program, they, didn't, they weren't ending it. They were actually just changing the way it was being paid for. But the idea that government should provide a way for people with no money to have health insurance uh, is not questioned in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that we should provide assistance so people can afford food um, is not questioned in the United States at all. And the idea that we should reward work with increased um, refundable tax credits is a little more questioned, but it has very broad political consensus. Mm-hmm. So uh, the last question from me, both of these, uh, these events, the Bradley Lecture and your event on September 24th, uh, the title is in the past tense. Did we really lose the war on poverty? Did we win the war on poverty? Is the war on poverty over? And if not, what's next? Well, again, poverty is defined in lots of ways, but the way in which uh, I define it for the purposes of evaluating these benefit programs is have we raised people's uh, material well-being above a, a, a low threshold but a, a, an acceptable threshold so that people are not destitute or, or starving or in deep uh, uh, dire need? And um, I think we've done that in the United States. We are an affluent society. We can afford it, and uh, we've done it. We may have spent more than we needed to in order to do it. Uh, but the question going forward is, is that enough? Uh, there are a lot of Americans who um, we would classify, the liberals would classify, and I would classify as being above the poverty line. And both of us would say that's a good thing. But those Americans don't feel as if they're safely and securely in the middle class. Uh, they feel like they're struggling and working harder than they need to. They feel like there are challenges in their lives that are overwhelming. Um, and they're not, uh, in their own minds, doing as well as they thought their parents thought they were going to do or as their parents were doing. And that's a problem. Um, and I think the next challenge is how do we make sure that our economy um, uh, provides opportunities for people in that situation to move up and uh, achieve a level of sort of middle class security that they aspire to or at least have a chance to achieve that. And um, in some regards, we've not done a very good job on that in the last 25 years. I seem to feel that one of the things I point I made recently was that in the wake of the Great Recession, the response of the Obama administration and Congress was to rush to shore up the incomes at the very bottom 
And they were very successful at doing that. Uh, the, the current, the former CEA chairman, Jason Furman, showed in a paper that actually incomes at the very bottom in the, in the heat of the recession grew because we increased transfer payments significantly. That's interesting. But people in the, in the next quintile, and one above that, they really suffered. And they also lost assets. Their, the housing market crashed. And there was no real effective uh, governmental response to help those families. And uh, I think that led to the election of 2016. I think there's a lot of frustration out there about not enough care and concern being devoted to this other group that is above poverty but still feels like they're falling behind. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on, for giving context for this, um, and we really appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. You're welcome. I hope that that conversation was helpful in showing how the question raised at the original Bradley lecture in 1996 is still alive and well today. And with that, here's Christopher Jenks on Did We Really Lose the War on Poverty? I'm going to make an argument this evening that most of you won't agree with, I suspect, so we should have a little fun. My basic argument is that I think we are we have badly underestimated the performance of some of the federal government's most important social programs and that we've given um, kind of government activity a, um, a bad rap along the way. Now the reason for this is not that legislators are good at inventing social, successful social programs. Um, they're not. America is an individualistic country and American legislators um, are um, reflect that kind of individualism. They don't get reelected by subjecting their schemes and proposals to careful analysis before they um, write them into law. And neither do they get reelected by um, subjecting themselves to party discipline. So the likelihood is that a legislator who sticks around and has a bee in his bonnet about almost any subject can horse trade it into a small piece of legislation. And the legislative record is filled with pieces of legislation of this kind badly thought out, badly administered, um, not very good ideas on the whole. Um, in that respect, though, um, the um, legislative record in Congress is not very different from small business in America. Um, most new startup programs in government are not so great, and most new startup businesses in the private sector aren't so great either. Um, and just as in the um, marketplace, where um, small businesses are ruthlessly selected out by and large. The same process of competitive selection works for most pieces of legislation. That is, a legislator can get a little program going, and as long as he sticks around, he can even keep the little program going, typically. But um, there is very stringent competition for resources, very limited tax resources. And in that competition, a legislator can only get big money for a program if he or she can convince somebody else that this program um, is really doing some good. And if you want to get a good-sized social program, let's say more than $10 billion a year, I'm going to treat as a kind of cutoff here for serious social welfare programs, um, you don't get it without having a fairly broad constituency that has some consensus that this is doing something or other that is useful. Now, useful to whom is an open question, but we'll um, just bracket that for the moment. Now, 
The kinds of big programs I'm going to talk about today are the ones that account for almost all the money we spend for trying to help the poor. These are the programs, therefore, that I think it's reasonable to try to assess if you're going to make a judgment about it, whether the war on poverty is successful or not successful. Um, the rest of the programs, and there are lots of them, are pretty much of a sideshow. In fact, in some ways, they're worse than a sideshow because their lack of success, which is frequent, um, gets a lot of media attention, and it has the adverse effect of giving a bad name to government activity in general. Um, I'll just give you one example, which um, would probably be uppermost in the minds of most people who are here and are old enough to have lived through the early stages of Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty, which is community action. Um, now community action gave the whole war on poverty a very bad name in the 1960s. Um, it was badly conceived. It was a political disaster. Um, but it never got much money. And within four years, the Democratic Party, not the Republicans, but the Democrats, had actually reined it in for the good and sufficient reason that it turned out to be a scheme for giving money to agitators who were going to denounce Democratic mayors. And strangely enough, they didn't like it much. Um, Nixon killed the program a few years later. Um, it's history. It's gone the way of the WPA. Um, citing a program like that as evidence that government programs don't work, or even that social programs don't work, seems to me exactly wrong. It's like citing the fact that most new restaurants fold within a year as evidence that capitalism doesn't work. Um, the community action story seems to me, at least, to prove that um, the political process in the United States does work, for better and for worse, but it works. It weeds out programs, and it squeezes other programs so that the programs that sort of survive in this evolutionary competition have a particular set of characteristics, and those are the ones I'm going to talk about. Um, so what are the big anti-poverty programs? I'm going to talk about means-tested programs, that is, programs that are specifically focused on the poor. That means I'm going to be ignoring programs that are, in some ways, even more important to the poor that are universal programs, of which the two most sort of obvious cases are public education and social security, which between them have probably done more for the poor than all the programs I'm going to talk about. But nonetheless, I'm going to ignore them. If you can put up table one. Um, now, before I start talking about the evidence here, I do want to say that all the work I'm going to talk about today um, is joint work with Susan Mayer at the University of Chicago. We've been struggling on this subject for um, close to 10 years now, and um, I need to acknowledge um, her participation. One of these days, we'll actually produce a book about this, but that seems to be the um, sort of mechanical rabbit that keeps eluding us. Um, I also need to acknowledge that these data were provided to me by Gary Bertless from a competing institution up the street. So um. now, the five big programs, when you look at the budget, look over in the column, it says 1993. Um, the five big programs are marked in red. Um, they're the bulk of the money. And there are no big surprises here. Um, they are um, Medicaid, which is 
$132 billion in 1993. That's um, not quite half the total budget, but if you add in the other um, medical programs, half of the total means-tested spending is on medical care. Um, there's some um, food stamps, which is marked down at the bottom for those of you who can, um, can't see over everybody else. Um, housing assistance. And then the two cash programs, um, AFDC, which we all know about, and what started out originally as program, as the um, old age assistance program under the New Deal and became SSI. So those are the big ones. Um, and the, um, I'm going to come back and talk about um, the substance of a couple of these programs in a minute, but the story I want you to take out of this is just to look at where the money's going and particularly look at the number that says, which I didn't underline in red, showing how carefully I didn't plan ahead. Total non-cash benefits here, $199 billion out of a grand total of $298 million. Two-thirds of the total are going for these non-cash programs. Um, now, the last thing I want to point out about this table is that these programs um, that you see as being the big programs of 1993 are not um, the products of any particular era. Um, they're certainly not the products of the war on poverty of the 1960s in any notable way. Two of them, AFDC and the um, programs for the aged um, and disabled, really date back to the New Deal, although the um, Old Age Assistance Program was transformed when it was turned into SSI in a way that you might want to count it as being a new program. But the basic idea was there, and um, it, um, it has evolved in, in more fundamental ways, perhaps, than AFDC, although um, as of today, AFDC, too, may be undergoing a similar transformation. Um, the, um, the one program on this list that's a real big one that dates back to the 1960s is Medicaid, um, which was added as a kind of afterthought to the Medicare program. Um, and then um, the last two programs um, that are really big ones um, are, for all practical purposes, programs of the 1970s, what I um, habitually think of as the um, second war on poverty, what you might think of as Congress's war on poverty after they'd gotten um, disillusioned with the White House's approach to a war on poverty, um, namely the um, food stamp program and the housing assistance program. Food stamps, of course, existed, was created in the early 1960s as an experimental program. So if you wanted, you could call that a 1960s program, but it really didn't exist as a national program until the 1970s and kind of evolved between 1970 and 1980 into a, a major national program the closest thing we have to a guaranteed annual income, and in a way, the um, sort of residual legatee to um, Nixon's family assistance program. Um, although maybe you could make the same claim for SSI in a different way. Um, housing programs um, are a mixed story here because, of course, public housing goes back to the 1930s, so you could think of that as a, um, as a New Deal program. But by the end of the 1960s, that program was in extreme political difficulty for a variety of reasons, but the most important was that by segregating poor people into housing projects, um, we had created a large number of quite visible projects that um, had crime rates so high that um, 
they were widely regarded as a menace and uninhabitable and so forth. The moment at which we um, dynamited Pruitt Igo and the picture was on the front page of every paper in the country, I think sort of is the sort of the critical moment for the um, demise of national support for public housing, although perhaps unjustly so. But that program was in effect reinvented in the 1970s as well under the rubric of Section 8 and became a program for supporting poor people so that they could live in private housing rather than in public housing. Now, the, um, the next thing, if you put up table two here, the next thing I want to um, focus on is the, um, the rates of growth in these programs during the recent, gen during the past generation, I guess you could say. I picked, for simplicity, I'm going to show you rates of growth between 1970, which in effect is the last um, Johnson budget, and 1993, which is in effect the last um, Bush budget. You could pick other years and you get more or less the same story. But this represents the, um, an era when the political climate was relatively um, stable in Congress and where the rates of growth that you see therefore represent, um, I think, a fair reading of the um, attractiveness of different programs to the average legislator on the Hill. Um, and what you can see, or let me, before you look at the numbers, look down to the bottom and you can see the sort of benchmarks you might want to use. Um, the rate of growth in gross domestic product converted into constant dollars for this period is 88%. So anything that grows 80, less than 88% over this period is taking a smaller share of total revenues at the end than at the beginning. Anything that grows more than 88% is getting more. Um, population growth is 25% or 26, I can't see that far. Um, but, um, and anything that's therefore that grows less than 25% is literally spending less per person at the end in real dollars than at the beginning. Now, if you look at this list, what you'll see is that um, there really is one program under education that grows quickly. That's um, support for higher education. And most of that money is interest subsidies for loans to middle-income um, college students. So to count it as an anti-poverty program is a bit of a stretch. It is a means-tested program, but it's not exactly mostly going to poor people. Um, the one cash program that keeps up with GDP growth is what has become SSI um, within two years of this period. Um, and even that keeps up only because the, um, the initial focus of the program, which was on the um, the elderly who weren't getting adequate um, Social Security benefits sort of diminishes over time, but the rate of growth in the disabled population is very rapid during this period, and so um, SSI grows very um, quickly. Now, there are, there are all kinds of stories we could tell about why it is that SSI, and particularly why um, disability grew so fast, but I think I'll put those off until we get to the um, question period, and if anyone wants to pursue that, we can. Um, the um, other thing you should certainly notice is that um, the rate of growth in AFDC here is smaller than the rate of growth in GDP, that is the tax bite for um, 
AFDC is shrinking over the course of this period. Um, that's a little bit arbitrary because I picked 1970 as a start date. If I picked 1960, it would have been constant instead of shrinking. If you picked 1974, it would have been even more dramatic the other way. But the basic story is if you look back to the, um, take 1960 as your starting point, AFDC is getting about the same percentage of GDP as it was to begin with. The big growth, obviously, is in the non-cash programs that have these staggering rates of expansion. Um, and um, that obviously raises questions about how you want to think about the success of these programs. Um, if that's what we did for the last 25 years, or if Table 1, which shows where the money was going, shows you what we did, what's a reasonable way to think about whether or not the programs worked. Now, an obvious answer would be if you spent most of your money trying to improve food consumption and improve housing conditions and provide medical care to poor people, the way to evaluate whether the war on poverty worked would be to see whether food consumption improved, whether housing conditions improved, and whether access to medical care or actual health conditions improved. But I don't want to push that too hard because it's also true that um, while we didn't do much to expand cash programs, um, you might still reasonably have expected that there would be some improvement in the cash income of the poor over this period because, as you can see over here, GDP was going up. You know, the country was getting richer. And so even if the government didn't do anything, you might plausibly have thought that there should have been some reduction in poverty. So what happens? Um, well, the short answer is that if you look at official poverty statistics to get your take on the poverty rate, um, it went up during this period. Um, it didn't go up much, but it was 12.1% in 1969. Um, it's, um, 12.8% in 1989. Those are slightly better years than these ones that we show here because they're both business cycle peaks, so they're a little more reasonable things to compare. We haven't got a, um, a figure for the um, present business cycle peak because we don't know whether we're at it yet. Um, if somebody does, let me know. Um, the, um, but um, it's a reasonable guess that the official statistics will show a slightly higher poverty rate for whatever year turns out to be the business cycle peak for the 1990s than the rate for 1989, though not a much higher one. Now, there are a lot of explanations for that um, trend in the face of the growth of GDP and the growth, obviously, of GDP per capita. Um, the, um, so the liberal answer ordinarily is that um, wages became more unequal, hence family incomes became more unequal, the benefits of growth went to the rich, and descriptively that certainly is a, is a reasonable description of what happened during most of this period, um, although the question of why it happens remains immensely controversial. Um, for some conservatives, the explanation is that all these government programs sort of sapped people's initiative and made them lose interest in bettering themselves and so forth. Um, I'm not going to get into that quarrel here, although you can probably guess which side of it I would take. Um, I want to propose a third explanation, which is that our poverty statistics stink. Um, the, um, 
I've not got time to go into the, all the details of this, but if you put up um, the third slide, I'll, or the third overhead, um, I'll at least give you a flavor of what's going on in these statistics and why you should not believe any trend data that comes from poverty statistics, as far as I'm concerned, ever. <laughs> um, except short run. I mean, I think if you read that the poverty rate went up last year by a significant amount, that is very likely true. But in the long run, so much else changes that the meaning of these statistics is um, negligible. The top row up here shows you the um, trends. These are trends for children, by the way, not for the whole population. The reason I put up children is that the trend for children is dramatically up during this period, and that's been the politically most sensitive number for talking about um, the sort of what's happening in the country, because numbers that only change from 12.1 to 12.8 don't get people excited. But the, if there's a big increase in child poverty, then if you're on the left, you can um, say this is terrible and we should have done more, and if you're on the right, you can say this is terrible and what we did must have caused it. And so both the conservatives and the liberals have um, cited these numbers lots and lots, albeit to completely different ends. Um, the, um, you can see from 69 to 89, there's a sizable increase in child poverty. It's about um, two-fifths. You know, that's a big jump. Um, now, I'm not going to walk you through the details of this table. Um, but um, I'll give you the idea. Anybody who wants to talk about it later, we can talk about it. Um, first big problem in these statistics is that the, um, st the Census Bureau thinks that income is received for poverty purposes by families, not households. So if you're living with somebody who you are not related to by blood, marriage, or adoption, it is as if you lived in a different household. And that means, in the case of children that if you're a single mother and living with your children and somebody to whom you are not lawfully wedded, um, that other person's income is not counted in the calculations about poverty. Well, as you all know, single motherhood has gone up and so has cohabitation over the last um, 25 years. And if you sort of clean that up and count in the whole of household income and then treat households as your basic economic unit, that is, you count all the people in the household when you make a poverty threshold and all the income to get the income, you can see over on the right the poverty rate doesn't go up as much. Next big problem is that the poverty thresholds are inflated using a price index, the consumer price index, um, that I imagine nearly everyone in this room now knows has serious problems. If you don't know it, you should know it because it's probably the most important single fact about the present budgetary crunch, but I won't go into that either. But you know, if you want a, a miracle cure for budgetary problems, it's fix the consumer price index. Um, the, um, what I've done there is to try an experimental price in indicator which fixes at least the known problems in the consumer price index or the known problems for which we have quantitative measures, not all known problems. There are lots of known problems we don't have quantitative measures for. And you can see once I do that in line three, it turns out child poverty is now going down. Um, line four takes into account all the non-cash benefits using the Census Bureau's valuation scheme. Those are approximations, the 1969 figures particularly. Um, but you can see when you take that into account, the rate's going down even more. And line five, just to 
give you a sense of how chaotic government statistics are, does exactly the same thing, but instead of using the current population survey, which is what the Census Bureau uses to count trends in poverty rates, I just took the decennial census and did the same thing, and you find you get a different trend. Um, that is, it goes down even more. Um, now, when you're done, you can see that you've turned a 5% rise in child poverty into a 5% decline in child poverty. Um, I don't expect you to believe the second row any more than the first, because after you've seen somebody do this sort of thing to a set of numbers, you would be very dubious that any of those numbers could possibly mean anything at all. And um, that would probably be the right reaction. I actually think line four is probably as close to the truth as I know how to get, but I certainly wouldn't expect anyone to take that on faith looking at this thing. Um, now, um, let's go on and look at some direct measures of material well-being because I think they tell you a lot more and they also tell you a lot more that's relevant to thinking about whether the war on poverty was a success or a failure. I want to begin with medical care because First of all, that's where we spend the most money. And I want, if you'll put up um, figure four, I want to start by focusing your attention on why we're spending so much money on medical care and when we did it. That is, this chart shows you the percentage of all medical outlays that are covered by Medicaid. And you can see that starting in 1965, there is naturally a very large increase. Indeed, there is an increase from zero up to about 9% of all medical services being paid for by Medicaid by 1972. And that, um, the fact that it took everybody so long to get into Medi get Medicaid sort of in place is itself an important fact about a program of this size. But there's this very rapid period of, of growth in the share of medical outlays going to um, going through Medicaid and by implication going to Medicaid recipients, although that is not totally true because some Medicaid recipients, of course, were getting free services before and some of them were being paid for in other ways, some of them were being paid for by states and so forth. From 1972 to 1989, if you look across here, nothing is changing. It's flat. The amount of money we're spending is going up by very rapidly during this period, but it's going up because we're spending more on medical care. Medical care is just growing, and Medicaid is keeping pace. But there's no big redistribution going on between 72 and 89 between the poor and anybody else. It's just that medical bills are getting bigger and bigger, and that's largely, though not entirely, because of the um, of a whole set of technological advances that make medical care um, much more expensive and at least somewhat more effective, although. Unless you happen to have been the sick person, you might wonder whether it was sufficiently effective. But since I've had such people in my family who would otherwise be deceased um, were it not for those innovations, I'm a great enthusiast of them. Um, then you see a second takeoff after 89 um, in which the share of medical bills is being paid for by Medicaid is again going up. I'm going to talk about what happens in the first period, not the second period, the first period of growth, not the second period of growth. And the reason I'm going to talk about it is that I don't have the data for what happened in the second period of growth yet. Um, now, if you put up the next slide, I'm going to go back again and focus on children. And I should stress that children only get about a sixth of the Medicaid money. That's going up a little bit now. But 
most Medicaid money is not going to um, welfare recipients, it's going to the elderly and to nursing home residents and so forth, and of the money that goes to welfare recipients, only about half goes to kids. So don't imagine that um, the um, huge number you saw before is all now going to poor kids, because that is not the way it is. But a lot is going to poor kids. Indeed, um, I think it's right to say that um, we're probably now spending significantly more money on the medical care of poor children than we are in terms of cash for poor children. Um, the, um, now, what I'm going to show you here is a very simple statistic. Um, ideally, these numbers, these numbers run from 1970 to 1990. Since I just showed you that this process changed very dramatically between 65 and 72, you would wonder, why don't I show you the numbers for 65? And the answer is you can't get them from NCHS. But um, I think I may have a route for doing this. But at the moment, I don't have them. I do have numbers for 1970, when this sort of Medicaid revolution was already partly in place. And what these numbers show you is the percentage of children under six, little kids, who had, been, had not been to the doctor in the past year, which is something that at least pediatricians think every little kid ought to do every year. Now, there's some question about how essential that is and so forth. But you can see that in middle-income families, people are pretty compliant with that rule, even in 1970. That is, only 15% of children under six had been a year without going to the doctor in 1970. And if, you had, if I'd put up the data for upper-income families, it would have been even more true that um, so the people who have the money take their kids to doctors, wise or foolish. Now, what you can clearly see here is that for the bottom quintile between 1970 and 1980, um, there's a convergence. By, the, by 1980, the difference between the bottom quintile and the middle quintile is almost gone. Now, then there's this sort of funny business going on between 80 and 82. That's because the Reagan administration cut the budget for this survey. They redesigned the survey. They changed the order of the questions. And everything was different in 1982 than it was in 1980. Um, the um, questions, I think, are actually better as a result of this, but they're, so maybe all those estimates are a little too low. But in any case, you can't make anything out of the non-trend there. And for the bottom quintile after, during the 1980s, nothing is happening. It's flat. So the story here is big change in the 1970s. Nothing much is happening in the 1980s. And that um, is consistent with what you would have thought if you'd looked at the um, sort of massaged poverty statistics that I had up on the board a minute ago, which also show big gains in the 1970s and not much changing in the 1980s. Um, I can't tell you how much of this is caused by Medicaid, um, but I can tell you a very plausible story about why I think that quite a lot of it was, if anybody wants to come back to that. Now, um, if you, I'm now going to turn quickly to housing. Um, if you put up um, the next figure, um, the, um, the data here come from the um, decennial census. Um, and these are the most rudimentary kind of housing statistics. This is the percentage of um, children who lived in households that didn't have complete plumbing. That is, they don't have a, um, a bathroom that has a, either a shower or a bathtub and hot and cold running water and a flush toilet and um, so forth. Um, and you can see there's a big drop in here. These are children in the bottom quintile of the income distribution, the sort of the prospectively poor, given the 
poverty rates running around 20% that I showed you earlier. Um, and there's a huge change in the 1970s. Um, there's also some change in the 1980s, but much less, partly because this indicator is running out of power. By the time you get out into 4%, you can't get much better. So it's not surprising you don't see a big further improvement. Um, that story, again, is not all driven by housing expenditures by any means. I mean, it's not, this is not a matter of the federal government. It's, um, a lot of it has to do with um, the urbanization of the poor in the 1970s. We can come back to that. There's a long, complicated story here that I won't get into now. Um, here I'm just going to concentrate on the material conditions in which these kids lived. Um, now, if you put up the next picture, um, the um, this one is um, from the American Housing Survey, but shows two other analogous measures. The little white bars in front are the percentage of kids who lived in a household that either had no sewer or had no septic system. I mean, so there was no modern sewage system as most of us would understand it. And um, lest you think that this is some sort of quaint and so forth, I can tell you people in upper income brackets don't live in these houses even in 1973. Your summer camp in Maine is not an exemplary case here. Um, the, um, and you can see that those numbers have gone down to practically zero by the end of the period we're concerned with. In the back, you have numbers which measure the number of um, children living in housing units where at least one room had no electrical outlets. Um, it's always struck me as an odd measure, but it actually works rather well. You can see that's going down, too. Um, what's going on here is that there's a clear general improvement in the material characteristics of the sort of the availability of modern amenities in um, kids' housing during this period. Now, you might think that maintenance was going to hell. Um, that turns out not to be true. The maintenance levels over this 20-year period are basically flat. Um, the only one that shows any change is that poor kids are less likely to live in households with a leaky roof. I think that's largely because they are less likely to live in households with a roof at all, because more of them live in apartment buildings. So the roof is um, somebody else's house. And if you live on the fourth floor and the building's 12 stories high and it has a leaky roof, you don't know about it. Um, it also means the water doesn't usually run into your uh, apartment, which is a plus. Um, anyway, um, the general story here is a pretty consistent one, which is that um, housing conditions seem to be improving, kind of the um, if you put up the last slide, I'll show you one more, which focuses on um, what you might think of as a luxury rather than a necessity. Um, this is the um, availability of air conditioning for poor kids. And um, you can see exactly the same sort of trend. That is, this is kids without air conditioning, so it's going down. Um, kids are getting cooler and cooler in the most literal sense. Um, and um, the, um, that trend is fairly steady over the whole period of time that concerns us. Um, I could show you lots more pictures like this. I won't. Um, I could also show you um, pictures that deal with telephone service. Um, they tell broadly similar stories. Telephone service goes up a lot, a lot in the 1970s. It's flat in the 1980s because of price changes. Um, the one indicator that I um, won't show you that is important is I'm not going to put up a long, complicated chart about food consumption 
And the reason for that is I don't have any data on food consumption that I believe. Um, but I will tell you what the data show because um, it would be disingenuous not to tell you that. And that is the data show that from 1972 on, at least, there's not much of any evidence of change. Um, once you adjust for household size and so forth, that sort of the ratio of food consumption to need looks pretty flat in the best surveys that we have from 1972 through 1990. There is fairly strong evidence that there was an improvement between 69 and 72 in the early period of food stamps. And I have, there's also fairly strong evidence that the trend line in the later data is biased downward for a lot of complicated reasons I'm not going to bother you with. But I think um, that's enough on that. Now, um, I think and hope that that <coughs> at least gives you a flavor of what's going on with the material conditions of life of poor people and how you might map that back onto these programs, which were, after all, directed very explicitly at improving the material conditions of life of poor people, not raising their incomes. But before I sit down, which I will do in a moment, um, I do want to say something about um, AFDC. Because if you asked 100 people randomly, sort of, did the war on poverty succeed or fail, um, most of them would say it failed. And if you said why, AFDC would probably be, at least for those who are not old enough to remember community action, AFDC would be the reason that they give. Um, now, I need to say a couple of things about this. Um, the first is um, that um, I think AFTC is a terrible program, so I am not here to defend it. Um, the second is that um, many people are convinced that AFTC played a big role in the increase in out-of-wedlock childbearing during the period that concerns us. And um, I wouldn't say with huge confidence that I know that's not so, because the research on this subject is full of holes. And there are lots of reasons to not be confident about anything that comes out of it. But most of the research certainly doesn't seem to support that point of view. Um, and I think the studies that do seem to support it are, if, if possible, even more flawed than the ones that don't, although that may be an order of precedence between a flea and a louse or something. Um, the big problem with AFDC, as far as I can see, is not that it's created big problems. The big problem with AFDC is that it rewards people for doing things that we don't want them to do. And that's not a good attribute of a politically um, controlled program. That is, if you don't want people to have children out of wedlock and you give them money when they do it, you've got a political problem on your hands. Whether they actually have children because you gave them money is irrelevant for political purposes. Um, the, um, not quite irrelevant. If, if it actually has this effect, it's even worse. But it's, let's assume for the moment that no one responds to this incentive. It's still a big political problem to have it, such an incentive out there. Um, now, what I want to say is not that this is a great program, but I want to say something about why it is that legislators haven't improved this program, given that I 
said something earlier about how we had a pretty good record of sorting out programs and saying, you know, we give the money to the programs we think are doing some good, food, housing, medical care. People thought these things were working pretty well. I think the evidence shows they were working pretty well. How do we account for the fact that AFDC is still with us? Um, it's certainly not because of sort of misguided liberalism. Um, AFDC has been unpopular for at least as long as I can remember, going back to the late 1940s, when I was growing up in Baltimore. Everybody was bad-mouthing welfare. And it certainly wasn't a program that anybody in the 1960s was gung-ho on. One thing Lyndon Johnson knew he didn't want to do was give cash to poor people and especially he didn't want to make AFDC a national program or a bigger program or even ever hear about it. Now, what was it we did to AFDC in the 1960s? Well, we did two things. One was the courts did some things to it, which um, I won't go into, but um, if we're thinking about the political process here, we did just what we're trying to do now. We tried to institute a program to get AFDC mothers to work. We passed in 1967 the Wynn Amendments designed to get welfare recipients off the welfare rolls and onto payrolls. Have we heard this phrase before? Um, it didn't work. Um, we didn't. Now, we've had hundreds of schemes to get welfare mothers to work, and by and large, they haven't worked. And the reason for this is not a big secret. The reason is that the kinds of jobs that welfare mothers can get if they go to work, and I should emphasize that in most places, most of the time, they can get jobs, but the jobs don't pay enough to support their families. And not only that, they by and large make people worse off than they are on welfare. Um, now that isn't inherently true, that is the cash that they pay you can get in a minimum wage job often exceeds the cash you can get from um, a, um, from AFDC, but the big difference is that um, if you have an AFDC check, you can also work on the books on the side, and that makes the check a little bigger, and you have time to be, um, sort of maintain your social connections with your family and your boyfriend and all that, and they'll put some more money in the till, so your outside take can go up and your net income is better. Now. The problem is, if you want people to work, you have to spend more money. You have to pay for their childcare, which is expensive. Um, and um, we haven't been willing to spend enough money so that people who took minimum wage jobs could actually make ends meet. And there was, of course, one other alternative we could have pursued. We could have gone back to what we did before we had AFTC. That is, we could have just done nothing. And if we'd done that, then we would have had just what we had before AFTC, which we hated, which was mothers abandoned their children. Not all of them, but some of them. And that upset a lot of people. Me too. Um, and we didn't want that. And besides, that's expensive because putting kids in foster care is expensive and putting kids into orphanages is expensive. Everything is expensive. The reason we invented AFTC was it's cheap. It was the cheapest program we could think of to keep mothers together with their kids and keep the kids at least sort of taken care of and not be public charges. It's still the cheapest program you can think of. It's not a good program, but it's a money saver. Now, um, this, I think, is an example of policy failure. 
we could do better. We could do much better than AFDC. And if we had devoted some significant fraction of the money that I showed you up there that went for non-cash benefits to reworking AFDC so that it actually paid a single mother to get a job and so forth, we might have done better. We never made that connection. We've never treated this as a sort of as a whole package that we were going to think about how are we going to make this whole thing fit together and work right. And that, I think, really is an example of policy failure. Nonetheless, um, if you look back over all this and you say, did the war on poverty succeed or fail? Um, I think you, what you see in a funny way is there's been a kind of um, collusion between liberals and conservatives to agree that it didn't work. Um, for the conservatives, it's pretty obvious. Um, for them, um, the war on poverty failed because it ignored human nature, it rewarded bad behavior, um, it focused on equalizing outcomes instead of equalizing opportunity, and of course it relied too heavily on the government instead of the private sector. But the liberals have actually pretty much agreed with this story. That is, they think that the war on poverty failed too. And indeed, when I show statistics showing that child poverty went down, it's the liberals who are up in arms about well, how could that possibly be so? Because they've had a huge investment in the idea that poverty was getting worse and therefore we should do some more about it. And in their version, the war on poverty failed because we didn't spend enough money, we didn't have the right programs, we weren't committed to really equalizing opportunity, much less equalizing results, all of which I believe is actually true. But nonetheless, um, the result is that sort of everybody wants this thing to have failed, even though it seems to me in many ways it did pretty well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Bradley Lecture. I'm Wilson, and I surely hope you enjoyed it. Tune in to the AI Podcast channel for more, and be sure to review us and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Until next time, we'll see you then.